If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Fast Track. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and today we are going to talk about something that I bet a lot of people are curious about. Um, you know, why why is it that you can't take a race engine and stuff that in your car, your truck, whatever, and make that work on the road. Why, why is it that you can't do that? And uh, a lot of people have tried. A lot of people come, you know, kind of close to it, or they claim that they have an engine that's uh, that's a race engine that they've turned into a, a street engine, you know, for their vehicle. And, you know, actually there are some examples of it, but they require a ton of maintenance, a ton of, uh, of upkeep. And it's, it's a different, it's a whole different animal than what you normally would have under the hood. And manufacturers create engines specifically for ease of use among the consumers and, and being able to turn the vehicle on and, and, and expect it to reliably power your vehicle, uh, you know, to and from the grocery store, to and from work, school, wherever you happen to go, long road trips, whatever. Reliability, um, you know, um, uh, just just the uh, like the repetitive nature of it that, it, that you can expect it to function in a certain way all the time. And you're not going to get that with a race engine. And, and we'll talk about that today. Um, in specific, we're going to talk about, um, you know, F1 engines, you know, because a lot of people would have kind of like the fantasy of being able to put a, a an F1 engine, a Formula One engine into their road car and make that work because wouldn't that be just incredible? I mean, it would be an amazing thing to, to have an F1 engine under the hood of your, uh, you know, your Mercedes, your BMW, uh, your Miata, whatever it happens to be, you know, a small little car. Can you imagine how much fun that would be in order just to stuff some giant race engine in there? And a lot of people, again, have come close to it. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those people in just a moment. But, um, you know, I, I want to kind of catch you up here on something. Well, in the last episode, we talked about um, some really fast cars. We talked about the 10 fastest production cars. And I, I told you that we're going to talk about the 10 outright fastest cars pretty soon. But when I was talking about the 10 fastest production cars, uh, I asked you the question, uh, what was the first time that you were in a car that ever traveled over 100 miles per hour? And I mentioned that it was my my uncle's Barracuda that I was in, you know, on a fishing trip or, you know, just a weekend 
afternoon out in the country. And uh, that was the fastest I'd ever gone at that point. I was really, really young at the time. Um, but I also want to mention this, and I think there's a, another question that, that begs to be asked here, and that is, what was the first time that you ever drove a car over 100 miles per hour? What was the fastest you've ever driven a car, maybe? Um, that's uh, Maybe that's the second question. That's actually two things. The first time that you ever drove over 100 miles per hour, when you hit that, that triple-digit number uh, for yourself with you behind the wheel, uh, do you clearly remember that? Because I know I do. I, I clearly remember the first time I ever did it, and again— you know, once again, it was on these back roads in Indiana, these uh, these these old country roads that have, you know, great big swales to them. They're, you know, kind of hilly. They're they're out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, this time, uh, it wasn't necessarily in the summer. You know, we weren't out fishing or anything like that. This is a, a different person, different car. Uh, this, was ha- this happened in the fall. It happened right around Thanksgiving. And I know it was Thanksgiving because it was my aunt's birthday. And we were always uh, always in town there for my aunt's birthday right around Thanksgiving. And uh, she had she happened to have a brand new car. And I was all excited about this car because um, a strange thing about this, she was married prior to this and they had um, an MR2, a first generation MR2, Toyota MR2. Uh, so that really angular uh, little little vehicle, two-seater, incredible little car. It was, it was really cool. It was black and gray, uh, really, really sharp little car. It, was, it looked like a spaceship at the time to me. It was incredible. It was so cool. And um, it, just a blast to drive, a lot of fun. It was a five-speed with that little um, short-throw shifter that was, you know, you put your arm way up on the armrest and you could just flip your wrist and shift this thing. It was incredible. And um, I, I was so blown away by this car. She had one... Uh, when she was married, she and her husband got divorced, and then she bought one exactly the same as the, the one that her husband took in the divorce. So she had the exact same car, and I, I'm sure this was kind of an "I'll show you" move, you know, a, uh, um, you know, I'll, I'll get the same car thing. Um, but but anyway, she showed up for Thanksgiving dinner with this vehicle, this MR2, and again, first gen, and she threw me the keys. And I was a pretty new driver at the time. I was as relatively young. Um, I want to say I was like 17, maybe 18 at the most. Uh, I don't even think I was 18. And uh, she tossed me the keys and said, let's go out for a ride. So we did before dinner. And we took it out into, you know, past the city limits. We went out into the country. And she encouraged me to drive it faster and faster and faster. And as we got going faster and faster, I realized I'm going to break 100 miles per hour here. And this is the very first time I'd ever pushed a car to that limit. And it was so much fun. And, and what a what a great car to be in to do it. It's so memorable. It was a great memory to have with my aunt, with this car, you know, the the the, the season, I guess, you know, it was uh, it was cold. It was it was dreary there. It was, uh, you know, not snowing yet, but but just about ready to snow. All the uh, the corns knocked down the field so you can see a long, long distance. So there wasn't much danger of cross traffic or anything like that. Um, there's always animal traffic and that's dangerous. Uh, but reaching 100 miles per hour in a car is one of those milestone moments that I think a lot of people recall or a lot of people can really, uh, you know, bring back up in their memory and say, like, I remember the day specifically when I did this. And then there's another, you know, question, I guess, that begs to be asked, and that is, um, you know, the fastest you've ever driven. And of course, that's a that's a completely different topic, and we'll probably get into that at some point on this show. I would think, but I would love to hear some of these uh, moments of yours, you know, your personal moments when you drove over 100 miles per hour for the first time ever, and uh, you know what uh, what led to that. With that intro, that's an exceedingly long intro, and hopefully uh, that'll get you thinking about some things during this podcast. But um, I do want to mention, you know, we we said that we had. Uh, 
kind of covered this before on another show. You know, I did another podcast called um, Car Stuff, and I still do Car Stuff. There's a there's a new version of that with just me, not uh, not me and Ben, my co-host anymore. But uh, but go to CarStuffShow.com and check out our archival information uh, that we have there. You can search our podcast history, our archives, and you can find that we have over 900 episodes in there that you can you can search. One of those happens to be on engine swaps. And the engine swap episode we did back in 2009, and I believe there was a, a repeat of this one back in 2012. Uh, it was a rerun. Same show. And um, we talked about a lot of, um, you know, things that people have done to their cars in the past. You know, whether it was, uh, you know, just fantasy, they wanted to do this, they have done it. I think mostly this show was based in reality and that it was it was people that had done swaps in their cars, maybe even some listeners that had transplanted something incredible under the hood of a, you know, like a small little vehicle or, you know, taking a, a V8 and stuffing it into a Fiero or taking a, a giant, again, another V8, a you know, Corvette engine or something and putting it in a Miata. Just incredible swaps like that that make cars faster and, and better in some way, you know, kind of a sleeper, I guess, in, in a lot of ways, or or just some enormous V8 engine that they would stuff into, um, you know, an old pickup truck and make it, you know, something that is unexpected on the drag strip, you know, that type, that type of thing. There were a lot of, um, th- there's a lot of stories about people that do things like this, you know, put WRX STI engines in, in different vehicles and and uh, just, just fun things, fun swaps that people do. One question that comes up quite a bit is... Um, you know, why can't I put a, a race car engine into my daily driver and make it reliable, make it, you know, something that I can count on to get me to and from work or school or wherever? And uh, like I said before, I think I just kind of touched on this, but, uh, you know, that's the thing is that the, the, the logistics behind this whole thing, this, this type of engine swap, they just really don't match up. The, the race engines and the production cars don't necessarily have enough in common for it to work Often enough, I know you can you can take you know um, maybe an engine from an old car that was a race car that raced at the uh, the local dirt track or circle track or whatever and put it in your your street car and and that might be kind of cool. But when we're talking about this this level of swap, when we're talking about you know taking an Indy car engine and putting it into um, you know uh, I don't know like a, a Subaru or something like that, or you take a uh, an F1 engine and you want to put it in into your BMW, it doesn't necessarily work that way. There's there's just not enough, um, you know, commonality between the two vehicles in order to make it work. The logistics don't work. And I'll I'll tell you, uh, there are five reasons, at least five, there's probably way more than five, why this won't work. And it it comes from an article uh, that that I'm going to follow along with here called thecarthrottle.com. And a lot of this, there's a lot of common sense in this as well. Um, Before I get into this whole thing, before I get into, you know, the top five reasons, I do want to say that, you know, I, I understand that there are some F1 derived engines in past vehicles, you know, past road cars that have uh, have been successful. Now, this isn't necessarily taking an actual F1 engine and putting it into a road car and making it work. It's 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 a derived engine, so it, it has a lot of commonality between the uh, the F1 engine and the road car. But maybe it's just the number of cylinders. Maybe it's just some of you know the um, uh, the head work that they do on the thing. You know, maybe it's very similar in that way. But you're going to find that the cooling and the fuel and all that is is completely different in these vehicles. Now, a couple of them, just to give you an example, I can give you maybe three or four examples here just real quick. Uh, The 2005 BMW E60 M5, that had a V10 engine that was... um uh, derived from the F1 vehicle that, that BMW fronted at the time. And uh, if you want, this is actually pretty good news because right now 
going back to get an E60 M5 with that V10 engine. It's it's fairly cheap considering considering what you're getting. Uh, you can find one that is roughly you know somewhere in the ballpark of about twenty thousand dollars right now. I know that still sounds like it's kind of expensive if you're talking about just a toy car you know to have on the weekends and have fun with or whatever. But uh, this one could be a daily driver. It could be a, could be a fun car for under twenty thousand. Uh, so keep your eyes open for an E60 M5 BMW from around two thousand five, and you'll find that they do have that that F1 derived. V10 engine. In fact, there's another one that's a lot more expensive. <laughs> this will show you that, uh, you know, the BMW maybe is quite a bargain compared to it. Uh, the, the Ferrari F50. The Ferrari F50 does have a V12 engine that was derived from the F1 car at the time that Ferrari was posting in that series. And uh, this is from around 1995 to about 1997. And then there's the Porsche Carrera GT, which has a 5.7 liter V10 engine. Um, and that is a, uh, a car that was built around, what, 2003 to 2007, I believe. I think that 7 was the, the final model year for that vehicle. Um, and there, there are some others out there too, but those are just you know three quick examples of some of these F1-derived engines and some of the road cars that you can have that, that, that do have these. But I want to point this out. I think this is really, really important. You know, to make these engines roadworthy would take so much effort to make them, uh, you know, so they're reliable, so that they cool correctly, so that, you know, you don't have to use some crazy, ridiculous fuel in order to drive them, you know, here and there um, to get the performance out of them so they won't knock, so they won't destroy themselves. There's there's so many uh, different things that we need to talk about in this podcast that we're going to get to, I promise. F1 engines, I want to stress this, are extreme. I mean, and, and that's not an over-exaggeration or, or an overuse of the word extreme they truly are. F1 engines are extreme. And just to give you an idea of what they're using right now, they're using um, the current F1 configuration for 2019. They're using 1.6 liter four-stroke turbocharged V6 engines in these cars. Now, there's been an incredible evolution in uh, in F1 engines over the years. And going back to pre-1989, there were unlimited cylinders. You could use an unlimited number of cylinders in the cars. If you wanted to have 16-cylinder, you could, a 12-cylinder, whatever. In the 1990s, they limited the number of cylinders to 12. And then in the early 2000s, they cut that back to V10s. Everybody was using V10s. And then in 2008, they went to V8s. And then I don't remember, I think it's around 2014, 2014, I believe, they backed it down to these uh, these turbocharged V6 engines. And, uh, of course, they're getting just as much power out of them. So, you know, the, the engineering behind them is very, very solid, of course, as you can imagine. Uh, and they drive just an incredible amount of power out of these things. Just remember how extreme these engines are and how the logistics just don't match up with your typical road car. So, you know, some of the stuff that uh, that I'll tell you here, uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, really, when you, th- when you think about it. Um, for number one, I guess, we'll, we'll start right here. Uh, they are notoriously difficult to start. They're a very, very difficult engine to start. So you can't just jump in the car and expect it to, to turn over if you turn a key or push a button or whatever. It doesn't happen that way. It has to. These things have to be brought to life in what we'll call precise conditions. And, and by, by precise, I mean that, first of all, you'd have to have these external pumps that would push... Um, coolant and fuel through the system. So you're going to have to, um, you know, pump these these preheated uh, liquids through the engine in order to make it even work. Now, I, this is kind of funny. I mean, the, the water and oil pump that would be necessary to send these around, um, they have to um, be preheated to about 176 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 80 degrees centigrade. Uh, to, to kind of warm up the engine's inner passages before they will even start. So, you know... Um, 
prior to that, uh, these things are built to such tight tolerances, so, such incredible small tolerances that uh, anything cooler than that and the engine is effectively seized. Uh, there, there's nothing uh, that would even turn that engine. The pistons are going to be so tight within those cylinder walls that they're going to be essentially seized solid. And so anything below 60 degrees centigrade, which is about 140 degrees, you can't even get it to budge at all. So, so 176 is going to be kind of the minimum temperature that you're going to need in this thing in order to get it to even crank over. And, and then once you do, uh, of course, you're going to have to have what is effectively like a large drill or, you know, a, a starting mechanism. And I think we've all seen this on the starting grid uh, for any type of open-wheeled race car, you know, IndyCar, F1, you know, whatever it happens to be, some of these other formula series where they uh, they have to crank the engine with um, an external starter, and that's how they get it going. So it's just not very practical for you to want to do this in your in your own driveway, especially on a, like a, you know, wintry morning in January or something, you know, if you're trying to go out in the snow and, and start up your car with an F1 engine, there's no way. They're just going to have no chance of starting that thing out. So um, understand that, that, you know, it will require these uh, these external uh, pumps that that pump this heated fluid throughout the engine, the coolant and lubricant. Um, you know, just a side note here, and I want to take just a moment to uh, to pause on this for a second as we uh, as we talk about this. And uh, one thing that I've, I've really enjoyed watching over the past several years on YouTube, and I, I've owned a, a car that has. Uh, I don't own it anymore. I had a, I had a car that had an enormous V8 engine, and it was a, just a beautiful sounding engine. I love to hear it run. One thing that I've I've kind of become addicted to, I guess, on on YouTube, is watching people cold start their muscle cars. And I know it's a little silly, it's a little funny, but um, you know, it doesn't even have to be a muscle car, it can just be an old luxury car, it can be any car from, you know, that 1960s, 1970s era that uh, you know, they 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 just refuse to start on cold mornings and you know, you're you're pumping the gas pedal, you're pulling the choke, you know, you're trying to do everything you can in order to get it to go, just won't fire and then finally after, you know, what it seems like a minute of cranking the engine, it finally it just slowly starts to turn over and chug to life and then once it does, you know, it uh, it burbles and kind of gurgles quite a bit and uh, finally kind of breathes to life. Once it does, you know, then you hear some owners, after a few minutes, they uh, they might give it a little throttle and, uh, you know, that's when they get, the, they get the great sound. But for some reason, these cold start videos online are just, they're fun to watch. And you can see some incredible cars and you get to hear some of the, uh, of the best engines that, you know, were made ever really. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, some of these, these enormous V8s that were just so powerful and so, uh, so dramatic uh, when they begin, <laughs> you know, they sound so amazing. Just, uh, it's kind of a fun thing. So, um, you know, I, we've gone through our list here only, we've only done the first one on our list. We've got four more to go and uh, I'd like to get back into it in just a moment. But first, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast is 
NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to to start listening. And we're back, and you're listening to the Fast Track, and I'm your host, Scott Benjamin, and we were talking about uh, about being able to stuff an F1 engine into your road car. Would it work? Would it not work? And, and uh, I, I think we're pretty much... Uh, Getting to the point where we understand that it would not work, uh, but uh, there are five reasons. There are five good reasons, probably a hundred other good reasons why it wouldn't work as well. But I'm going to give you the top five. And uh, the first one that we talked about was because uh, they're they're tough to start. That's one thing, and really, really tough to start. Um, the second one that we're going to talk about here on our way to the the last version or the last reason is that they're not cheap and. Uh, to which most of you will reply, duh. We know that. They're not cheap. They're, they're very, very expensive. In fact, the average F1 powertrain at this point, and I think this article was written in, uh, this is a 2019 article, 2018 article. Um, the price is roughly $7.7 million, anywhere up to $10.5 million per engine. So imagine this. I mean, let's say that you've got the, uh, the ultimate top-end vehicle um, that, that Mercedes makes. And you want to put a Mercedes F1 engine into it. It's not going to be as simple as you think. Mercedes doesn't build its F1 engines to fit into its road cars. However, uh, let's say you've got a Mercedes that's several hundred thousand dollars, in, you know, to begin with. It's a road car. And you want to put one of these in there. The manufacturer is not going to put a $7.7 million engine into the car and expect you to be able to maintain it and 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 keep that thing going. It's just there, – there's just no way. There's no way to justify – putting that type of money into an engine for a road car. Um, the cost, again, the cost comes from some of these extremely tight and tiny tolerances that engines are, are manufactured or machined to. And uh, because of this, that, that's how they get every little tiny bit of power out of them that they can within those six cylinders because, you know, again, they're dealing with six cylinders, turbocharged engines, uh, turbo, of course, but but still – they are trying to get every tiny little bit of – last little morsel of power out of that engine that they can. And uh, and that's how they do it. They manufacture them to these really, really tight tolerances. And as we said in the starting part of this, you know, if you don't even – if you don't circulate the fluid throughout the engine in order to heat it up, it's not even going to turn. It's going to be as if 
they are seized in there. It's that tight. And that's not the case with your normal road car. You're able to typically, you know, put a wrench on the engine and turn it freely. Um, it's a struggle in some cases. There's a lot of compression there. Uh, I, I agree. However, it's nothing like an F1 car. Um, there's just no way to even move it at that point. I do also want to say that F1 engines rev at something like 15,000 RPMs or even more in some cases. And they use things like pressurized nitrogen, which snap the engine valves back into place, um, you know, after the camshaft loads have opened them. So they're, they're like, there's more to it than just, you know, it being... Um, expensive to, uh, um, you know, to manufacture the engine, expensive to, uh, you know, upkeep the engine, I guess. It's like a different world. You know, you would you would require having somebody on hand at all times in order to monitor all systems in this car as you're driving it. You know, practically after every drive to the office, you'd have to have somebody monitoring the engine, telling you what you broke during your drive to work, how much it's going to cost, you know, and you likely wouldn't be driving that same car home. That's the way, uh, that's the way a lot of these work. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment, too because uh, that is coming up. But one other thing uh, here in number three on the list out of five that we're going to talk about is cooling. And, uh, oh, man, with that 15,000 RPM that we talked about and, uh, you know, just the incredible efficiency that these things operate and, you know, how hot they have to be in order to, to maintain uh, even fluid movement so that they, that they continue to operate, um, you're going to find that cooling is really, really critical in these things. And radiator sizing um, is really, really important. It's huge. It's a huge concern for F1 teams. And if you've ever seen an F1 car, and I'm sure that anybody listening to this podcast is, is familiar with an F1 car or an Indy car, those enormous pods that are on the side of the car, so the ones that are to the left and right of the driver, those are where the coolant, uh, the, the cooling system is housed. So that's where that's where you're going to find the radiators. And uh, the radiator is actually heat exchangers, but it's a radiator if you want to call it that. That's the best way to say it. Um, but they are enormous. They're they're much bigger than just the pods. Uh, you know, the distance from the top to bottom, if you were to measure them, uh, you know, they're, they're less than the height of your knee, maybe, you know, when you're standing next to the car. So the way they get around this uh, in order to make these um, much, much bigger than uh, they would be if they were standing upright is that they angle them. And the heat exchangers are angled down and away. So the top front edge is angled to the front of the car. The bottom edge is angled to the back of the car. And, uh, and they're really big. They're, they go through that whole pod um, kind of like at a 45-degree angle. So there's the maximum amount of airflow over top of those things. And, um, you know, in order to keep one of these F1 uh, power units cool, you know, you have to keep them overheating, you're not going to be able to do much idling. So if you're in traffic every day, you know, in uh, Atlanta traffic or Dallas or Los Angeles or wherever you happen to live, uh, you're not going to be able to keep your F1 engine powered road car cool. There's just no way. You're going to have to continue to have airflow over those radiators, those heat exchangers for uh, the entire time that you're driving it. It really requires you to uh, to keep them moving in order to keep them cool enough to operate. And that's something that just a lot of people aren't going to be able to to do. Um, you know, they, they put out so much horsepower. They have such high uh, revving speeds that, you know, it's difficult to keep them cool. You need as much air as possible. Those side pods are about the only way that it's going to happen. And unless, you know, you are someone who is willing to completely change the look of your vehicle. You know, uh, you know, the front opening for a radiator in most cars is not going to be enough to cool one of these engines. If you were to try to get one into your car, you're going to need something much, much larger. So you're going to have to have, uh, I guess what you would call, <laughs> as this article says, a rather adventurous body kit um, on your vehicle in order to, uh, to make it work. So you're going to have to, you know, add these extra side pods on the side or, you know, add something that is going to look out of place on your vehicle in order to make it work and to, uh, to get those, um, 
those coolant systems in place that are sufficient enough to keep the temperature down. You know, we're going to talk about uh, two more things here uh, before we wrap this up. But first, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. And we're back and you're listening to The Fast Track. I'm your host, Scott Benjamin. And we were just going through this list of uh, reasons why it might not be a good idea to stuff an F1 engine into your road car. And uh, and there's a lot of good reasons, probably hundreds of reasons. And uh, we are up to number four on our list of five here that comes from an article that was written in carthrottle.com if you want to follow along with this. And there's probably many other articles just like it uh, with, with other typical uh, or other similar reasons as well, I'm, I'm sure, because uh, these are... These are some good some good reasons. Number one, I think, is right where it should be. But first, let's talk about number four. We'll talk about the fuel bill. And uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, uh, the fuel bill. So F1 regulations rule this. There, there's a rule in F1 that dictates that an F1 engine or an F1 car cannot burn through more than 100 liters of petrol per hour of driving. So that equates to roughly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ballpark this, that's like a little more than 26 gallons of fuel. So that's for one hour of driving. Now, consider that, you know, a lot of people drive about a half hour on your daily commute. And that's, uh, of course, you're not going to go race speed, obviously. You're going to go a little bit slower. But uh, it's going to typically amount to about 50 liters of fuel, which is about 13 and a half gallons of fuel that you're going to burn on that commute, on that half-hour commute to work. So uh, it's going to be quite quite an expensive drive into work. And the thing is that these F1 cars can carry a lot of fuel, too. They can carry 225 
liters, which is almost 60 gallons of fuel. So that's a lot of fuel to put in your car. Um, you're going to end up spending a lot of time at the gas station. And and here's the interesting thing, and you might not have guessed this, is that the type of fuel that these things run on, it's it's not necessarily that much different than the type of, of fuel that you use in your daily drive. Like if you were to drive a car that uses high-octane fuel, um, it's fairly close. It's not exactly the same, but it's fairly close to the same chemical makeup of fuel that we use every day. But, you know, there have been some slight modifications to it, you know, with some uh, some additives and, you know, some uh, uh, different things that, you know, are required per engine. And that's the thing, that's part of why this is, again, this is just something that is not capable. Logistics just don't work out for something like this. And that's because after every single race, uh, the engine oil is tested for up to 15 different types of metal to source any probable any probable concentrations of wear in the engine, so you're you're looking at um, you know chemical analysis uh, analysis rather of the engine oil, and I think they even send the fuel out to make sure that they're using the, the proper fuel and all that. But the engine oil is is monitored for up to 15 different types of metal uh, that, are, that are found within the engine, so that they'll be able to tell where the wear is coming from. If it's the piston rings, if it's the cylinder walls, you know whatever it happens to be. If it's the, if it's camshafts that are wearing prematurely, they'll be able to determine exactly where that metal's coming from. And then they they change the fuel. They contact the fuel supplier and they dictate the level of cleaning and friction reduction additives that have to be integrated into the next batch of fuel that they send them for the race. So fuel is not something uh, that can be overlooked in this uh, when you're when you're talking about you know putting an F1 engine in your car. It's something that you definitely have to consider if you're going to even try this. And, and I, again, I don't recommend anybody does this. If you have 7.7 to 10.5 million dollars burning a hole in your pocket and you want to try this, go ahead and do it. But um, I just don't think that uh, the well, actually it's just not going to be possible. There's so many reasons why it's not a good idea to do this. Um, but after every single drive in your F1 engine road car, uh, it would be advisable if you wanted to run and to operate like a, an F1 engine does in a in a car in a you know on a team on an F1 team. It would be advisable to hire a chemical engineer to test your car after every single drive that you make, you know, to and from work, wherever it happens to be, just around town, and then supply you with you know custom fuel specifically blended for your engine. And that's that's one very good reason not to do this. <laughs> I mean, oh, oh boy, this would be expensive, wouldn't it? Be, it'd be super, super expensive. Otherwise, um, otherwise, it might be a great idea. Other, you know, other than the other four things that I've told you already about this thing. Uh, the last one on this list, uh, this is maybe, again, I think this is, uh, this is right where it should be. This is number one on the list for a good reason. How many times have you been watching an, a Formula One race or any kind of car race and one, two, three laps into the race, someone blows an engine. There's mechanical failure immediately. Now, again, this is a seven and a half to ten and a half million dollar engine that is uh, somehow, somehow found a way to grenade itself. It, it imploded in some way. What happened? Uh, you know, you're, you're going to find that there's a, a variety of reasons. There's a lot of problems there. They have to be cooled if they're not cooled correctly. You know, it could be any number of things. There's just a lot of stresses put on these engines. As you can imagine, even in a well-running car and in something that is, is perfectly running, 
the lifespan on these engines is very, very short. Now, in an unlimited F1 car, um, you know, they're they allowed to spin as high as, as 20,000 RPMs. And we said, you know, they've been limited to about 15,000 RPMs. I think that's what F1 dictates. But if it was unlimited, they could spin it up to 20,000 RPMs. And uh, they have a real small stroke, a real wide board allows this to happen. But the pistons are moving up and down at something like 300 times every second. So 300 times every second, the pistons are moving up and down. That's extremely fast. And if you consider the weight of all those components that that do all that, that, that make that crazy movement in the engine, uh, the pistons can experience somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,600 times the weight of gravity. So the pistons are experiencing 10,600 Gs when they're at, at maximum revs. Now, that's 20,000 again. I don't know what it is for 15,000. There's no calculation for that right now, but there's an incredible amount of internal pressure that's going on within these cylinders. Um, you know, the, the cylinders are reaching somewhere around 1,500 PSI every second. Um, you know, it's no surprise that these engines, they typically last, and this is the maximum lifespan for these engines, somewhere around 1,000 kilometers. Now, that's about 621 miles before they have to be completely stripped and cared for and, you know, re rebuilt in some way. Um, now, that's not a whole lot, and, you know, I've, I've kind of done the calculation for this. Now, this article says something, do you, you know, do you want to rebuild your engine six to ten times a year? Uh, not something that most people want to do. And and here's the, the truth behind that is, you know, at 621 miles for the maximum lifespan of this before it has to be rebuilt— Six to ten times a year doesn't amount to too many miles per year. That's only between 3,726 miles and 6,210 miles driven per year. And I don't know a lot of people that drive, you know, that short of a distance, that small of a distance. Uh, you know, very few people do. Myself, I put something like 20,000 miles on a car a year, maybe even 25,000. Um, but the average U.S. driver at this point is putting 13,000 476 miles on their vehicle every single year. That's the U.S. average right now, 13,476 miles per year. That would equate, if, if you divide that by 621 miles uh, between rebuilds, that means that the average driver would have to rebuild their engine 22 times every year. 22 times is what you would be looking at to rebuild your seven and a half to ten and a half million dollar engine. So um, there's just no there's no way to get this done. And uh, you know, I, I, this is funny. There's a there's a quote in here, and I've heard this quote many many times. And and I, I think it's funny, but it, it makes perfect sense. And it was actually a quote from uh, Ferdinand Porsche, and it's from a long. This of course goes back to the 1920s, I think. But it's talking about uh, race cars and perfect racing cars and how you know they they just give their ultimate, you know, the most that they possibly can, and then they just, they, they die at the end. That's it. I mean, it's very dramatic. I understand that. You know, it's like, uh, um, you know, give it give it your all, and then that's it. It's it's over. Um, but the, the quote is, the perfect racing car crosses the finish line first and subsequently falls into its component parts. And I completely agree with this. So the idea is that you win the race, the car just completely falls apart before you even make it around to your victory lap and, uh, and, and you're the winner. But, you know, the car has given its all. It's given everything. And I don't know if anybody has ever driven a car like this. I, I've, I've had several cars like this, and, and this is something to kind of watch out for. I've, I've, I've driven many, many cars over my years. I've, I've had several cars. And some of them were a little sporty. Some of them were, you know, just sedans or whatever, you know, a variety of vehicles. The sporty cars, however, I've noticed a few times, and this this happens occasionally. There, there's maybe, and I had it, 
you know what, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but let me just tell you this. There are certain days when my cars felt better than other days, and it felt like the car was just driving at its ultimate best performance. It just felt good underneath me. For, some, for whatever reason, it was shifting right. It felt good. It was handling right. Everything was just right. And, uh, and then there are other days when it feels like a little, a little bit more sluggish or whatever, and it doesn't coincide always with the weather because you would think that, um, you know, it would be, as one of my former bosses would say, it's maybe just atmospheric conditions that, that cause that. You know, it's, it's, it's cool weather. It's, uh, it's cool weather that's not damp, you know, that it's dry weather, you know, and the, and the roadway is hot or, you know, it, it feels, you know, the tires are able to warm up and it feels better. And that wasn't always the case. It didn't always match up that way. And I was always puzzled by this. But then I've had a few cars in the past that I've been driving, and this is a a fantastic thing when it happens. It feels great. The car just feels loose. It feels like everything is working right. The engine is so smooth and so it just everything is like it doesn't make any noise. It's uh, it's shifting smoothly. It's it's driving better than it ever has before. And you're wondering what is what's the deal with this? Why is it working like this? And then you know one week later, catastrophic engine failure. Something like that. You know, some major, major problem happens. It turns out the car was loose because, you know, something was about to break. You know, there were things that were going wrong in the engine that were making it loose. It wasn't as tight or it wasn't being bound up. It wasn't being restricted in a way that it should have been. And, uh, you know, it, it ran too freely. It ran, uh, you know, a little too a little too good. Or maybe I pushed it a little too hard or whatever. But, um, you know, watch for that sometimes. I mean, if, if your car is running really, really great, Maybe, you know, maybe uh, instead of thinking like, oh, this is fantastic, maybe take a look for something that's going wrong with it. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that, that happens quite a bit. Um, but again, that uh, that kind of falls into that category. And we've I think we've seen cars that do that on the racetrack too, you know, that uh, – yeah, they run fantastic for the race, but they can't make that final lap. They can't. Uh, they can't push it into victory circle. It's just. It's too difficult. So, you know, when you're running a powertrain at, at the peak of automotive engineering, at the peak of perfection, it's something that is uh, a different monster altogether from you know the car that you have in your garage right now that is built for you know a hundred thousand miles of of what you call you know. Low revving, low revving driving. You know, like uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't get pushed to the limit every single day like this thing does, or every single moment like an F one engine does, or 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 should be. Uh, F one engines almost need to be pushed to that limit. So um, I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of reasons. There's probably again a hundred reasons not to put an F one engine into a road car, but that's five, and uh, I think we'll stick with that and and leave it there. Um, I do want to mention that we are going to uh, we're going to talk about more topics like this. We're going to talk about engine swaps. And we're going to talk about some some of these uh, the, these engines that that push the ultimate limits in the in these cars. We're going to talk about you know uh, drag cars that have five thousand plus horsepower. We're going to talk about some go karts. Even we'll talk about you know that that uh, that go faster than you could ever imagine from a modified Briggs and Stratton engine. We're going to talk about all kinds of engines in this series and uh, and and in this podcast over the years as we as we progress here. And uh, if you have a comment on today's show about the F one engine and and road cars and you know why it's not possible, or, or maybe an engine swap that you've done that, you know, is, is pretty exciting, you know, something that, uh, that that markedly improved the performance of the car, or it was just an interesting swap for whatever reason. I don't know. You put a helicopter engine into a car. Like, you think about Tucker and what he did. He put helicopter engines in the back end of his cars um, early on. That was something remarkable. So that was, uh, that was interesting, and maybe maybe you've done something similar. You know, just tell me tell me whatever you're up to and uh, what you've got going on in your barn out back, and, and uh, I'd be excited about hearing about that. Um, I like that kind of thing. 
And if you want to, you can contact us. So there's a, there's a way you can get a hold of us. You can you can find us on any of the social network platforms. We are on Twitter, where we are at the Fast Track Pod, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are um, at the Fast Track Show. Or you can go to the show's brand new website, which is the FastTrackShow.com. And I'm pretty excited about that. You can check out uh, you know all the podcasts there and uh, kind of look back through our archives. And of course, you can leave um, reviews on Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you happen to listen to your podcast. I mean, that's always helpful if you can leave a review. And if you like what you're listening to, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to tell your friends because we're always looking for new listeners. So, um, you know, we're excited about it. We hope you're excited about it. And uh, and we'll see you next time. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.